Matter of fact, I don't even, it's kind of, it's kind of scary how much you depend on this because you know the clocks are just going to change themselves. We even have a clock on the wall. It's called an atomic clock. It takes a battery and it adjusts itself to the time. Um, but what would happen to us if we, uh, what would happen to us if we did not have this technology? How many of us would be here? We'll pray in a moment. Uh, what I'm hoping to do today is you'll, you'll see a handout which looks almost the same as last week. We didn't, get it, we didn't get through it. We didn't get through a major portion of the lesson last week, and I thought we might not. So if you don't have the handout, it's here. It's roughly the same. It has a little bit more detail under number four. So four and five is really what we didn't do, so we'll do a quick, a quick review of the first section, and then we will move on to... The main thing, what I hope to do with a little, some slides is take you through a little bit of the, the geography of the historical books. And then the next weeks, what we'll start doing is giving you overviews of books or pairs of books or sections from the historical books. And the Lord willing, the point of this class is to help you better read the Scriptures. So when you take up and read, you are able to understand uh, better. Why don't we pray? Actually, I want to read from Psalm 78 first and then pray. The importance of history and communicating the history of the church to the next generation. As you're coming in, if you're wondering why everybody inexplicably is sitting on one side of the church because they're hoping to see the slides here. So, any, you, if, I, I block almost all of that side there. And if you want to be closer, there's, we can, there's seats up here. Um, yes, yeah, you might even want to make room so people can come in. Mr. Van Voris. Well, on my, from my perspective, you're a right-winger at this point. Um, but you might want to sit on this side because we are about to see some geography slides. And if you sit on that side, you won't be able to see them. Okay, let's read together. Psalm 78, the importance of history, church history, and that's really what we're studying, Old Testament church history. The contemplation of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God, they refused 
to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. If you keep reading Psalm 78, you will go all the way from the Exodus and the conquest to this little phrase at the end. God built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young he brought him, to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. It take you all the way, Psalm 78 takes you all the way from the Exodus and the conquest all the way to the Davidic kingdom. And symbolically, we can bring that really all the way to the end of the Old Testament as we wait for the Son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 78 reminds us, as it traces that history, the importance of the people of God in knowing the history of the church. These things were written, uh, Paul says, for our instruction. And that's what we're trying to learn more about. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we have read your word, and you have reminded us that Christians are to be historians, that we are to be those who survey and meditate on and think over what you have done in days gone by. And we think especially of how you are faithful to your covenant, and that though Israel's story is one of so often rebellion and wandering, that you, the great shepherd of the sheep, again and again restored your vine Israel, caused your face to shine and brought salvation anew. Lord, we thank you that all of these themes that we study in these books are eclipsed and culminate in our Lord Jesus Christ and his gracious kingship and perfect kingdom. And that the history of the Old Covenant has been eclipsed also by the age of the Spirit and the building of your church to the ends of the earth. And that is why we are here today. We think of you, the God who speaks and works and acts in history. We pray for grace to be sensitive to your leading and worship you as we see your works. And we pray for mercy to keep learning by your Word and Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of review from last week, and you'll see uh, something, if you weren't here last week, the organization of your Bible, and we'll go through this quickly. It's where we begin. We are studying, as you might notice from the box there in bold on your handout, the historical books. So the law was the first five books. We did a class on that. A couple years ago, COVID has upset our sequence here, but um, the idea of... um, uh, we we're working through sections of the scriptures, the uh, law or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. We look through now the historical books, then we'll do the wisdom books, and then we'll do the prophets. I want to review this for you to keep in mind that if you want to be able to read your Bible well, we're going to have two themes today. One's going to be a review of chronology. The other one's going to be geography. Uh, it can be daunting to pick up the Bible and not know how the thing fits together. And the organization of the Scriptures is 
uh, helpful to think through. It's not, again, not chronological. Has anyone seen those Bible, read your Bible through the year chronological edition? Those are an attempt to help you read through these various sections, the law, the history books, the wisdom books, and the prophets, in order. So you would read through the appropriate pieces of, for example, the historical books and the prophets roughly together. And I wanted to have in your mind this idea of layers, that these three sections give you layers. If you look at the first five books of Moses on the timeline on the back of your uh, handout, you'll see that that brings us um, all the way from creation to the edge of the conquest. And you see Joshua there, somewhere uh, just around... Uh, the Exodus is 1445 B.C., roughly 1450, and then the conquest follows right after that. The first five books of the Bible fit from creation to just before the little words that you say, the conquest. And they contain both history and precept. They are both, in a sense, prof- history and prophets at the same time. Moses being the great prophet of those books. So if you were to think about categories, first five books are historical and you have a prophetic uh, revelation in them at the same time. We also remember that the first 11 chapters of Genesis roughly cover from creation to the flood. Now just after the flood is the Tower of Babel, but that gives you the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So... Those first 11 chapters, if you look at this timeline of history, cover almost a third of the timeline, 11 chapters. And, and so, uh, to get in your mind, you've got the first five books of Moses, they're covering a, a very large part of this timeline, and they are comprised of both historical narrative and didactic teaching. Then we move into what we're studying now, which is the historical books. And we are going then from, you see the, again on your handout, there's that line, the historical books, and we're looking from about 1400 B.C. to about the return from exile. Um, And that period uh, covers the books Joshua through Esther. And now we're going to think, I want you to think about the books of the Bible, the sections. So you have the first five books, that's the first history and prophets as it were together. And then as you move down the timeline, the historical books have a layer above them which you could call the prophets. And they are in parallel. So the prophets are interspersed through Israel's history. And as you, the illustration I gave last time, it's kind of, what you have is, if you're to get an equivalent today, Sermon audio is the collection of preaching of all kinds of churches in the last 20 years. It's not a very good illustration in one sense, but in another sense it is. The prophets are the history of the preaching ministry and the revelation of God to His people according to His covenant of grace during that historical period. So you've got these two layers, and the prophets are interspersed through. So you are reading history and prophets together, even though you have the whole historical section, and then you have a prophetic session later in your Bible. You have to think of them as in parallel. And then there's another layer, which is wisdom. And we looked at Job, who's usually linked to the period of the patriarchs. 
And you go all the way to Solomon uh, in there. And that's a big period of your timeline. Again, if you're looking at the timeline at the back, Job would be, maybe you could put him somewhere around the call of Abraham, the period of the patriarchs. And Solomon would be, you see the little line, the divided kingdom. Uh, so the, the wisdom literature is another overlay. So you have, if we were to put it together, you'd have historical books, you have a section of wisdom literature that be, predates historical books and goes all the way to Solomon. Then above that you have the prophets. And the prophets actually go beyond the historical books because they go all the way to Malachi. Um, the prophets are till the 400-year intertestamental period. So I want you to think of your Bible again in layers. You've got the history that undergirds. You've got the wisdom literature that is overlaid over that period. And then you have the prophets overlaid over that. And the example I gave last week was Isaiah, who, uh, who actually, he's an example of a prophet who's also, there's a lot of history in Isaiah, well, there's in Jeremiah and Daniel, but Isaiah 38 and 39, for example, intersect with 2 Kings narrative of Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles narrative of Hezekiah, and that's an example. You remember when Hezekiah gets sick, Who's the prophet that appears? It's Isaiah. And Isaiah's ministry then is historically rooted in this period of kings, Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, etc. He's, he's, he's in that history, and you get then an expansive view of the preaching ministry of God at a certain point in history. So as you're reading, flipping your pages in your Bible, you get to um, Job, and you're actually resetting the timeline farther back. In other words, you're, you're, you're going back in history, back to Abraham, and then you're going forward in the, in, the, in the wisdom books. You're doing the same thing in the prophets. So think about layers, and they would be history, wisdom, prophets. Now, the New Testament, we noted, has a similar history, and you had Gospels and Acts, which are the New Testament history, and then you have the epistles, and then you have the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic and goes beyond the end, all the way to the end of history. Um, and, and just the way to think about how you read. Historical basis, and then you have the revelatory, either prophetic or apostolic ministries that explain the histories, and then you have the wisdom literature, and in the New Testament, that one book, the book of Revelation, apocalyptic, which in a sense also stand as a separate category uh, from the rest. So, your Bible is not arranged in a strict one book to the next chronology like chapters in a novel. It is arranged in collections. Okay, um, and uh, until I understood this, I did not read the Bible very well. I, I did not think through it very well. I did not think its chronology of its chronology uh, very carefully. So, um, let's jump down on your handout now to a section that we did not cover, and that is number four. The place of the uh, historical books in the flow of redemptive history. We uh, talked about chronological history last week. I want to talk about how the historical books now fit into the redemptive history of the Old Testament. What God is doing for the salvation of His people in the covenant of grace. In other words, the uh, thematic connections of the books of the Old Testament and how they fit together. Um, 
We come to the uh, historical books after, of course, the end of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And like reading any book, if you were to start on chapter 11 in in an unfolding narrative, you would be lost. You would not know characters and people and places and things and uh, I'll give you an example. If you, if you read a book that's almost at the end of the history, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, if you read Nehemiah chapter 9, here's a man who's living centuries after Abraham. When he prays, his prayer is filled with the narrative of Abraham and God's covenant with him, and then the Exodus. And Nehemiah is actually profoundly rooted all the way in the uh, Pentateuch history when he prays to God. He's thinking through that history. If you were to just jump into Nehemiah 9 and you didn't, and never read the first five books of Moses, you wouldn't know what he was praying about. In other words, these hold together. So uh, a little bit of, of the big picture of the Scriptures. And I unashamedly... Um, and, well, I have to give attribution here. This section is the work of my good friend... Dr. Morales, basically. Uh, If you have not uh, read any of Michael's books, let me recommend his book, Exodus Old and New. That might be a good place to start if you've never read any of Michael Morales' books. He's a professor at Greenville Seminary. He probably has been more helpful to me in understanding how to read the Old Testament than anyone else I have ever read in terms of what we're about to look at here. The narrative, or what is happening in the Old Testament Scriptures. What is the story? And I, there's part of me that intensely dislikes the word story because now everybody just talks about story and there's this unhappy habit of saying that my story fits into God's story and I don't like the way we use this word. It, it's, kind of, it's often used today to elevate my experience and figuring out how that fits into God's plan, rather than looking at God's great mighty works and glorifying Him. Anyways, we, be, we become very subjective instead of objective. But the broad word, the way I'm using the word story, is the narrative of redemption, the history of redemption. So where does it begin? Uh, the original creation, which is... Uh, let's, give me, let's give a couple elements of the original creation. We have God... The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with divine power and glory, creating the entire cosmos, the earth, the center of that cosmos, on the earth, a garden, in the garden, man and woman made after the image of God, fashioned, man fashioned by God out of the dust of the ground as an act of special creation, Placed in that garden for what purpose? A life of communion with God. And the, uh, the garden is a meeting place. It's a, a, a temple. It is the dwelling place of God with men. It is uh, the place where Adam was to live and work and labor and obey and reflect God's glory, and give Him praise and honor, and to be made in God's image, to be like a reflector, a, 
a mirror that reflects that blazing glory of God back to Him in praise, worship, adoration, and communion. Friendship would even be a word that we could use. It's used in the New Old Testament already for Moses, who was a friend of God, and Abraham before him, the friend of God. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but we have a man and a woman. We have a garden, a place of communion and perfection, and we have that garden set symbolically on a mountain in Genesis chapter 2, and the blessings of God flow upon all of His creation, supremely the crown of creation, Adam. Adam falls. What happens when he falls? See how awake you all are? All the questions I'm asking, someone should know the answer. It's not hard. What happens when he falls? It's pretty simple, but... Man and the rest of the world fell with him, that's right. How about directly in the, in the narrative? He lost dominion. We're, we're like good Presbyterians, immediately moving to theology, but uh, this is even simpler than that. He lost communion with God. Okay, more theology. It's good. It's all good. Everything's right. A little history. Sin, more theology. Good. Very good Presbyterians. Yes, began to die. Yeah. There we go. There we go. There we go. Which is symbolic of all of these things. They all hold together. But the simplest answer was what happens is he is, well, first he is, the curse is pronounced, and then he is cast out of the sanctuary. He is cast out, and you remember this mysterious supernatural reality, the cherubim with the flaming sword guards the way to the tree of life. And there is not a way back. Uh, there is, but Adam on his own is unable to enter in. He has been, key word, exiled. He has been exiled from the presence of God. Um, so now, I want you to have a few things in your mind. You had this mountain for communion. You had the sanctuary. You had Adam and Eve with God. You had sin, which leads to all the things we just talked about, condemnation. The physical uh, evidence of that, the condemnation and the wrath of God was separation and exile, to be cast out into a bitter and sad world and with only hope that God would remove the cherubim and open the way back in some way. Uh, the fall was the exile from the house of God and the presence of God. The law. We often think of the word law as negative. I'm using, we should never, by the way. The law is, the commandment is holy, just, and good. If you, if you think that law is contrary to gospel in some way, I hope soon you will, you will see that law and gospel cohere beautifully. I'm using the word law here to describe the first five books of Moses. The narrative of the first five books of Moses is very simply this. How shall man return to the presence of God? What is the way of return? Is there a return from exile? Could there be a restoration of fellowship and communion with the thrice holy God and sinful humanity? What is the way? And uh, Michael, and here's where I'm going to quote Michael, he, he has his book on Leviticus, which he entitles, Who Shall Ascend the Hill of the Lord? Who Shall Dwell in His Holy Place? I'm going to quote uh, 
my brother, entering the house of God to dwell with God, beholding, glorifying, and enjoying him eternally, I suggest, is the story of the Bible, the plot that makes sense of the various acts, person, and places of its pages, the deepest context for its doctrines. For this ultimate end, the Son of God shed his blood and poured out his Spirit from on high, even to bring us into his Father's house in him as sons and daughters of God so that we might sing with the psalmist, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out with joy to the living God. How happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. The tabernacle is a little picture of the dwelling place of God with men and the sacrificial system is the way of approach to a holy God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The Passover lamb um, is part of this pattern. The history of Israel is the slow progress, as it were, and not really, it's symbolic progress. The true and only progress is through our Lord Jesus Christ. The true and only way. He is the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's, going to be, he's the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant. But God has seen fit that it would not be until Galatians 4, the fullness of time, that the woman would bear the male child that we read about in Revelation chapter 12. That there would be a period of preparation and signposts that point forward to the work of Christ. And in that period of preparation... There would be pictures of the return. The tabernacle is one. The great crisis in the building of the tabernacle is that in Exodus 40, what? Moses could not enter in. And we have these pictures that come to the edge, as it were, and then beg for more. The conquest of the land. Before the conquest of the land, we have a second picture of the frailty of Moses. Just before Israel enters the land, what happens to Moses? The great old covenant mediator. He dies. He's buried on Mount Nebo. He can see, but he can't go in. And who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? And the Old Testament says at the end of the day, Moses was unable to fulfill the task. Uh, later, when David falls... This mighty king, man after God's own heart, in so many ways, worthy of emulation, but unable to provide salvation. Picture, a beautiful picture, but then he stumbles and he falls, and Israel does not have a Savior in him. Um, there are cycles of this theme in the Old Testament. Um, in the historical books, let's move ahead to the conquest of the land. We have the conquest of the land. Why is there a land? There's a land in order that God might dwell with His people. He will bring them to a place of rest. And He plans what? To use His king to build His temple on His holy hill in Zion in the nation that Israel might have communion with God and that the nations might stream to Zion. 
It's for the restoration of communion with God. It's a picture of the same thing. The conquest of the land, we have the conquering of Jerusalem, which goes all the way from the days of Joshua. David only finishes it in, in, the reign, in his reign. In this, we'll have things like the building of the temple, the dedication of the temple, and we have a movement of Israel from exile and wilderness wandering from slavery in Egypt to the mountain of God and communion with God. We have what appears to be slow progress in establishing the fall. You go tabernacle, temple, you have exodus and wilderness and conquest and rest and temple and glory and Solomon. You have this building up. In the same pattern, you have a long list of failures. I just mentioned some of them. But there, with those failures, I want to give you a second theme. So you have the theme of approach to God, but then you have these themes of failure and exiles. So whenever Israel fails, there's an exile. Adam failed, he was exiled. Um, Noah, he's brought through the waters of salvation in the ark to the mountain of God. He builds an altar, there's a sweet-smelling aroma, and what does he do immediately? He fails. And what happens? The judgment of God, the Tower of Babel, there's an exile, there's a scattering. And this pattern of approach and failure and exile will repeat again and again through the Old Testament. And there, is, there are elements of this pattern. There's common experiences. For example, Michael Morales likes to point out that in these patterns, there are patterns of going through the waters to the mountain of God for communion with God, after which there is often a failure in the Old Testament. And I'll give you two examples of this pattern. Noah through the waters of judgment in the Ark of Salvation to the mountain Ararat, a purged and renewed world. His descendants return to the land, Abraham, but then Abraham's exiled to Egypt and he returns to a mountain, Isaac, for communion with God. Another exile, Jacob, for a sojourn, and then he returns through the waters of the Red Sea, which are judgment for Pharaoh, salvation for Israel, just like Noah, and they are brought to the mountain of God in Sinai in preparation for entering the land. Another example of the pattern. Uh, a reenactment of the pattern at the Jordan. What happens? The Israelites under Joshua pass through the waters on dry land in order to enter a homeland with God and one day there build a temple. David will conquer that land. Solomon will build the temple. The glory cloud will descend and the dwelling place of God is with men. And then what happens to the kingdom of David? There's going to be a failure and there's going to be another exile. And that will set us up for what? This pattern of, of pictures that end in failure will bring us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ who in no wise, in no way, in no moment ever fails to offer himself as the second Adam, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to God in perfection in order to bring us salvation, redemption, to bring us to God, to pay for our sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and to give us the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to keep us, to make us alive and keep us. And this is the great, um, it's a modest picture in the Old Testament, and it's clearly always longing for more, and that more is only found in Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the historical books. 
place of the historical books in that theme are from Joshua, the conquest of the land, so the promise of rest. And Joshua begins one of the, he's the beginning of a positive part of that cycle. And the exile at the end of the historical books is Israel's ultimate failure. There's going to be ups and downs in between, but if you were to understand the place of the historical books, they begin with all the promise of life and communion with God. Jerusalem, and a temple, and glory, and, 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 and Solomon's reign, we're going to see in a moment, we're going to go through some geography. This great kingdom at the center of the world, king that draws all men to himself with his wisdom and riches, and it's shattered at the end with another exile. And that in the prophets, now we're going to go back to the prophets, they interpret all of this in the promises of the new covenant as the reason that we need a suffering servant, a Messiah, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bring us to God. Jesus, Christ, His work, and Pentecost. So the historical books, again, begin with the hope of of a homeland, and they end with an exile, and they set us up for the one and only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And I hope you get a sense there of the narrative arc of the Old Testament and the saving purposes of God. Questions here. Just This is to help you read the Scriptures. Any questions on this pattern? Maybe none? Mr. Higgins. Correct. They are not intermarried with those other peoples. Pagan nations, yep. So that they would be dedicated to the Lord in their worship. Uh huh. A proper understanding of that period? Sorry, can you ask the last part of that again? I'm just a, is that a proper understanding of why God gave them, you know, mandates not to intermarry, to keep the influence of other nations from coming into the nation of Israel. To maintain their holy, holy purity, yes. And perhaps one of the... You, you actually... In that, you bring us to all the way to Ezra chapter 9, for example, where they were... This was their problem in the already in the wilderness when they're fornicating with the Moabites. Their lust for this world things of this world and the pleasures of this world. The same problem exists all the way in Ezra chapter 9 where Ezra has to rebuke the returned from exile for their marrying with their pagan neighbors. They still have not learned. And they're, in a sense, the crisis with that, that symbolizes at the end of the Old Testament is, um, it's like Numbers 11, the people are in the wilderness and they lusted for Egypt. And Moses says, oh, that all the people would have the Spirit. And uh, the intermarriage pattern in the Old Covenant, the wandering from holiness, preserved by God and a special distinct people, is one of the themes. It's one of the great themes that reminds us of the desperate need of Israel. Is that helpful? Correct. Yes. For exactly the same reasons, yes. The New Testament would be uh, very similar in its patterns of holiness. The New Testament, it's interesting, what does Paul call the New Testament church in Galatians 6? 
the Israel of God. And so the patterns that we learn from the Old Covenant are the moral patterns, especially the law, the Ten Commandments, are abiding. They are abiding patterns. Um, anyway, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to do a little walkthrough of geography, and I hope this isn't too... hope this isn't too... Um, boring for you. We're going to shut some lights off. And we are going to try to... We're going to start with Jim's observation here. Can you all see this? Okay, this is not very complicated. But I think we talked about Israel being a little postage stamp in the middle of the world. This is the modern world. This is us right here. South Carolina, unfortunately hidden in that little shadow. Um, that... Basically, that you can tell this comes from Google Maps. Basically, that little red thing is, is significantly bigger than Israel on this map. What's so interesting is that the history of the Bible basically, uh, it basically happens here. Now, Babylon is about here. Nineveh is about here. And so if you were to take the history of the historical books, the, the historical books happen about in that circle on the globe. Yes. Later on, with the New Testament era, the, we have this whole, we, well, we have Egypt here um, in the, already in the um, patriarch period. Egypt is involved. The rest of the Bible, if you were to take the scriptures, they happen in history here. So we've got Rome, you've got Paul going to Spain, you have Paul's missionary journeys here. You have tradition tells us that after the apostolic era that Thomas went to India, so the apostles went out, uh, but that's not contained in the scriptures, though it does seem to be historically accurate. But the actual narrative of the scriptures happens, yes, in the Mediterranean basin, the narrative of the historical books right in here, which interestingly is still a very volatile period to this day. Israel is, that's Iraq, Syria, Persia, or Iran. Um, but let's get to a better picture here. Um, let's see if I can figure out how this works. Okay, so now we're zooming in a little bit, and uh, this is modern-day Israel, and you're going to see this map again in a moment when we look at the Kingdom of Solomon overlaid over this. So here you have the Nile Delta. This is the Red Sea. The route of the Exodus would roughly be here. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, just to give you some, there's Jerusalem. Mount Hermon would be up here. Uh, Israel, generally, in the history of Israel, if this circle here, we'll see in a moment, is going to be generally almost all of the history of the historical books will happen in here. I want you to keep for the rest of these slides, that's the Dead Sea. The slides are going to change in orientation and in um, size, but if you keep the Dead Sea in mind, you'll have, that'll help you hold the slides together. But, so that's modern day Israel, which still exists. It still has uh, uh, Jerusalem, it still has uh, all kinds of names of cities that you would find familiar, Bethlehem, for example, to the present day. It's, it's a real historical place, and the history happened here. Okay, this slide brings you, now this is the Nile River Delta that we saw earlier in that picture uh, from Google Maps. Uh, we have here a supposed route of the Exodus. You have to be very careful. We don't know exactly, but I'm going to try and bring you through the history of the Old Testament with some maps. And I'd encourage you, 
to think about both chronology and geography as you memorize the scriptures. It helps you, it helps it hang together, and it helps you see the movement. So we start here. The patriarchs have gone from the land, Jacob and 70 persons, they ended up in Israel, and now we are um, tracing a perhaps the route of the Exodus. Here this says proposed sites for Mount Sinai. I want to show you how, how impressive modern scholarship is. That is a proposed site for Sinai. So is that, so is that, uh, so is that, so is that, so is that, 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 that. I believe I've got them all. Um, I'm trying to illustrate that. Yeah, we have bounds to our knowledge. But this is Egypt. This is roughly where Israel starts. Somewhere in here, the Red Sea crossing. Just a little historical note. Um, most uh, geologists believe that the Red Sea would have continued up higher as a larger body of water 3,000 years ago. So if you're wondering where the Red Sea crossing is, could have been here, here, we're not exactly sure. But Egypt, Red Sea crossing, wilderness, okay, all the way to Kadesh Barnea, we have a rebellion here, and then we have 40 years of wilderness wanderings here in this period. Uh, Sinai probably somewhere in here, but we're not exactly sure. We have wilderness, 40 years of wilderness wanderings in this period. So people without a home, pilgrims, and waiting for the land of rest. This here represents that last journey of Israel towards the Jordan River crossing, which will happen up here. This is Mount Nebo up here. This is where Moses dies. This, this roughly brings you in geography from the land to Sinai, which is very soon after the Exodus, 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and then right up here to Mount Nebo, which is where Moses dies, and it's we're at the cusp of Joshua taking us, taking Israel, rather, well, the church, into the Promised Land. So, there's a little uh, first slide. This is, so ne Mount Nebo would be somewhere around here. I can't exactly see. I'm sorry that these are fuzzy. I think this is the best focus I can get. Let me try. See if I can sharpen that up a little bit. Not much. But I'll just talk you through it. Um, conquest of the land. So you saw in that last slide that Israel comes up here. This green outline is a good estimation from reading the book of Joshua to get some idea of what progress Israel makes in the days of Joshua to conquer the land. It's hard to know exactly, but um, you get some sense here of what is happening. Um, we have a couple important cities. This one's Jericho. This one's Bethel. Uh, Jerusalem is right here. And so here's some significant um, historical uh, locations. Jericho still exists today. There's actually a very significant historical uh, dig that happened there. Uh, a fairly liberal archaeologist in the 1950s went through Jericho but actually found some profoundly interesting history there. Remnants of a city with a fallen wall, and uh, uh, according to the scriptures. So, very, uh, very interesting history. So, you've, so, this brings us to Joshua. You have a campaign this way, campaign this way. You remember also that there were tribes in Joshua 22. Sometimes I read the reading of the law from Joshua 22, where after the conquest of the land, Joshua reminds the tribes that will settle here, he reminds them that they are to keep the law of God. He is thankful that they kept their promise to help with the conquest here. And then those warriors go back over the Jordan and they settle here. So that's Joshua 22. 
um, and which is a notable point in Israel's history. This is a, so. Here's the Dead Sea. So we're nor, we were looking on this north is this way. So I don't know why this. I couldn't find a better picture of the tribes, but distribution of the tribes: Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Ephraim, Gad, Manasseh is divided, half tribe on one side of the Jordan, half tribe on the other side of the Jordan. This is this will be later the Northern Kingdom. You'll notice that the uh, nations that we often read about, Moab, I think I mentioned the Misha Stele, um, which is a bit of uh, history of the kingdom of Moab. These are going to be antagonists for Israel. These will be as well. Um, the southern kingdom we'll see later is going to comprise this area when Israel divides the northern kingdom, this area here. But this roughly gives you an outline of the land as conquered and distributed. Again, um, it's hard to get it exact, but I'm just trying to give you a sense. This slide is impossible to read. Um, I was hoping for better things. So let me explain to you what it is. It's a list of all the judges and where they came from. <laughs> Every one of those boxes represents a judge here, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, all the way to, to Samuel. Samuel is at the end, and Samuel, this is his um, base of operations right here. When we get to the end, this, this slide covers all the judges um, in Israel, and they, they range from the very bottom of the land. I think that's Othniel. I think that is Shamgar at the top. They come from all different cities throughout the land. God raises them up over uh, the period of the judges. We begin here with Othniel. We'll end with Samuel. And this is where he is laboring, which interestingly is very close to the center of the land. And he will be the tran transitory figure uh, between the period of the judges and the period of the kings. Um, so let's uh, move on. This is another slide. So let's go. We've got Joshua. We had the conquest of the land. I've now gone through the period of the judges, which is not that helpful, but you get the idea that scattered throughout the land, again and again, God raises up uh, leaders for Israel. This slide represents what we've just been preaching through in the evenings, which is the kingdom of Saul. So this would be the kingdom of Saul roughly. As far as we can understand from the scriptures, these are the boundaries, this is the territory that Saul is going to reign over, and that's what he defends. All the wars and all the history of Saul's kingdom happens roughly within these bounds. This is a little bit of contested area, which Saul in the main uh, controls. Uh, you'll see that there is the, the boundaries or the, the borders of Israel will expand and contract depending on God's discipline of His people and other kings coming in to encroach on that land. Again, it's hard to see, but this gives you a sense of the, um, um, the land. Okay, if I go back here, let me see here. This is back. That is the kingdom of Saul. This is back to the conquest of the land. You'll see that there's this lobe here that Saul seems to expand into. But generally, if you look between these two, there's not much difference in terms of the land that is ruled over all the way from Joshua through Judges and Saul. Uh, you'll see next that there'll be a significant difference. This slide represents um, Saul's kingdom. Right here, purple. Uh, David, it's green. And then Solomon, 
establishes firm control all the way up to here. So you'll see that between from Saul to David to Solomon, there's a massive expansion of the land. And Solomon represents in the history books the, the zenith of this hope. He's the king who has wisdom. The nations are bringing him tribute. He's known all the way around the world. The queen of Sheba comes. He is, if you are an Israelite and you lived through the days of Solomon when every man could um, enjoy his vineyard and rest in the shade of his fig tree and be under the control of this king who had peace and dominion and was known all over the world, that would be this uh, area here. You'll see still, it's not that big. Um, it's still not that big. As a matter of fact, I think my next slide is going to overlay this. This is modern, back all the way to modern. So this would be the biggest extent of the rule of Israel, the firm rule of Israel, the kings of Israel, in modern, this is on a modern political map. So we're going up here to Syria. Notice Damascus would have been, uh, Damascus would have been under uh, Solomon's control and then all of this land here. So it's a significant portion of land, part of Jordan, half of Jordan, Israel, big piece of Syria, half of Lebanon would all be under the control of Solomon. In addition to this, the kings around um, this area are giving tribute to Solomon. And that's where you get language like in Psalm 72, that the nations will bring tribute to God's king. If they weren't directly subjugated by Solomon, uh, these nations around would be uh, vassal kings or tributaries. We think of that for rivers, but they would be tributary kingdoms. And that is also how Solomon extended his influence. So very significant. Um, this is another picture of Solomon's kingdom. As he, uh, Solomon was an organizer and a builder. If you read carefully the history of Solomon, this high point in terms of the politics of the kingdom he redistricted Israel into these administrative sections. And he placed governors over each section. He was very industrious. He mining and building and timber and maritime trading. Uh, Solomon is a very significant historical figure in Israel's time. Uh, we don't think of him as significant very often. And why might that be? Because he, he fell so hard. And he failed so badly. He, he took the foreign wives. He allowed idols to flourish in Israel again. And we recognize as believers, even filled with the Spirit, that all of this earthly organization and power without holiness at the end was a tragedy. Um, and, but at the same time, there's a picture here. There's a little picture in the Son of David of the extension of that reign. Okay, so this, what happens after Solomon? Historic history of Israel? His son Rehoboam reigns. You know what happens? His, Rehoboam's counselors say, um, increase the taxes, be heavy-handed, um, subjugate all Israel, and a rebellion thrives under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and this orange becomes the northern kingdom, and Judah, right here, becomes the southern kingdom. Edom, Moab, Ammon are still there, Aram or Syria, Phoenicia, it's modern-day Lebanon, and Philistia. What's here right now in Israel? Anyone know? Gaza Strip, which still the strife between the 
between Philistia and Israel continues to the present day. Very interesting. So the Gaza Strip is right there. Um, the kingdom of Judah would be much smaller right then, and we have set up now for really almost all the rest of uh, um, First and Second Kings is going to be this division. This is the most significant house in the northern kingdom. What is it? There's all kinds of kings that come and go. It's going to be the house of Omri and Ahab, and he will represent, he is the visible, you know, the chief representative of rebellion against God and apostasy and idolatry together with his wife Jezebel. A very sad part of Israel's history and leaving this little remnant here. So, you probably don't know this all already, but we're going to try and just trace the history. So now what happens is this is the Assyrian Empire. So we get to the end of the historical books and as the, um, well, not the end of the historical books, that's wrong, really the middle of the kings. Um, 1 Kings 17 about, you have uh, this division of the land, north and south. God comes in judgment and He will take the northern kingdom, right about that little circle right there, he would take them into exile, into this kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom. All these colors represent simply just different phases in its expansion. starts here, and slowly all this territory is added all the way to here. You'll see it becomes a very mighty kingdom. And in 722 B.C., and we have Tiglath-Pileser, and then we have Sargon II and Sennacherib, and those would be these two right here. It's hard to read them. But these two colors, this is expansion, this here... This is an expansion, and um, then this green expansion happens. This period of these two expansions, the red and the green, period that leads up to 722 B.C., and the exile of the northern kingdom into the Assyrian kingdom, and this is important, there is essentially no return from that exile. That is a banishment. Yes, the lost tribes of Israel. That is a banishment, the ten lost tribes of Israel, that does not have a return. It's a very sobering part of the historical books. It's a reminder that the wages of sin is death. There is not repentance, continued idolatry. There is not a return to the mountain of God. Okay? Now, these lines here are this... Well, that's this line here, sorry. So here's this exile into Assyria, the blue line. We'll get back to this slide in a minute. Now, second... What does that leave us with? That leaves us with uh, this slide here, okay? And I want you to notice this. By 722 B.C., so the Assyrian kingdom, you remember they also come against Hezekiah. And they push back all the way to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah has to pray. He lays out that letter before the Lord. And when he lays out that letter before the Lord, the Lord vanquishes the Assyrian army. And, is, and Judah has more time. In this period, this, this becomes the essential heartland of Judah. This little tiny patch here represents, as it were, the last fumes of the kingdom. So you've seen conquest of the land, Saul, roughly the same, Solomon much bigger, division, and we're shrinking back. And as Israel sins, you can see it in her geography that there is chastisement, but the Lord preserves this and under the Assyrian kingdom. So this, is, this would be Judah's 
rough boundaries, but it's tight, period of tight and established control. This is roughly what's left in the Assyrian period. The northern tribes are gone. They've been carried away. And this is now under Assyrian administration. And this is a little enclave left, which goes up and down. So then, uh, real quickly, Babylonian Empire. And uh, this green really is the Babylonian Empire proper. We're now looking at a period about 100 years after the Assyrian kingdom takes the 10 northern tribes. We have a new kingdom in town. Uh, we, well, this whole, not more than town, covering the whole region here. Here's Israel again, and this little circle here is Judah, right here. It, gets, it is subjugated by Nebuchadnezzar. You have the exile. This line was the northern kingdom exile. They don't come back. These lines represent the exile and the return. Okay, I hear children coming up. We're going to... We're going to, we'll be done in one minute here. This here is, um, let's keep going. This is the Greek uh, kingdom under Alexander the Great, which if you read Daniel, you, that's prophesied. And then let me go to the last slide here. This is the Roman Empire, which brings us to the end of the Old Testament. This would be the condition. Israel subjugated by the subsequent empires, never regains a Davidic king or its independence after the exile into Babylon. When you come to the end of the Old Testament, Rome rules the world, and Jerusalem is a vassal of Rome. There we go. I think we're at time. I hope that's helpful for you. We can turn the lights back on. Uh, I hope that's helpful to you to understand a bit of the geography and history of Israel. Obviously, I went through that quickly. Um, it's useful to use your maps in your Bible and to think about two things as you read. I want you to have these in mind. The, well, three things really. The grand narrative of the Scriptures, as I outlined it. Uh, the exile and return and exile and return and that Exodus pattern. Um, the timeline of the Scriptures, as on your handout. And then the geography. If you put those together, now we're going to start reading those books in that bigger context. I wish I had time for questions. Write them down next week. I'm holding up progress, I believe, on the stairs. Mr. Van Voris has a, a question or a comment. It's not a question, but for a long time now, I've been reading one chapter of the Old Testament, one chapter of the New Testament each day for my devotions. And I've just, tomorrow I will finish Second Chronicles. And I will tell you that if I had to only read the Old Testament, I'd be left heavy-hearted uh -huh. because only reading the New Testament keeps things in balance because all the slaughter that went on during those periods of the Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It's, it's in the thousands of people being killed all the time. Yes. It is a period which cries out for a Savior who is Christ the Lord and Him alone. Okay, let's pray. Father in Heaven, as we think of Your works in history, we pray that You would uh, give us the wisdom to read Your Word uh, as, a, as a book, as a narrative, as the recounting of Your mighty works, sequential works through history, according to Your covenant of grace in which You have chosen a people for Yourself and a place of communion with them. Lord, we think of the shadowlands of the Old Covenant and we are surely thankful for better things in the New. 
But we know that all of your word was given to us for our profit, and we pray that you would help us to read and mark and understand it better, that we might see more of Christ and his glory.